Welcome to the Innovation and Technology Management Seminar Series hosted by the Engineering Management Program in the Pratt School of Engineering at Duke University. My name is Jeff Glass and I'm the Faculty Director for the Engineering Management Program. The purpose of our seminar series is to introduce engineers and scientists to various business and management concepts that they will find useful throughout their careers. Speakers represent a diverse array of industries from finance and information technology to materials processing and biotechnology. If you'd like to learn more about the Engineering Management Program at Duke, including these podcasts and any associated audiovisual materials that are sometimes available, please visit our website at memp.duke.edu. Thanks for your interest in our series, and please do not hesitate to contact us with suggestions or questions. We're excited to have Dr. William B.J. Lawson here for our seminar this afternoon. Dr. Lawson received his bachelor's in engineering and his medical degree from Duke University and then started a surgery residency at Duke. However, he left the surgery residency in 2001 to pursue a passion for clinical information technology nurtured during his research while a Duke medical student. His interest led to the founding of Mercury MD Inc., which was dedicated to making patient information accessible to clinicians on mobile devices at the point of care. Between 2001 and 2006, Mercury MD's clinical workflow solutions grew to serve over 200 hospitals nationwide, supported by a team of over 70 employees. Dr. Lawson served in various roles during the founding and growth of Mercury MD and continues his work in healthcare information technology after Mercury MD was acquired by Thomson Corporation in the spring of 2006. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I'm sure that there's nowhere else you would rather be at 4.30 p.m. on a Friday, but hopefully there's enough beer and pizza swimming around inside your bloodstream that this will be a pleasant experience. I really want this to be interactive. I asked before getting started, what, what is it that you all typically hear, and, and what does what is, what is a, uh, a typical presenter do for an hour up here on a Friday afternoon? Uh, and really, my intent here is just to talk about the experience of doing something for the first time that I'd never done before. And frankly, I didn't, I didn't have any formal training in how to do, nor did I have any expectation that I'd be particularly good at it. But what I discovered going through it is that engineering training in particular was actually not a bad setup to getting started and eventually being successful as an entrepreneur. So with that, if I could see, just see a quick show of hands, who here has started a company before? I mean, it might just be one or two people. Or, and who here has worked for a startup company before? Has anyone worked for a startup, a garage shop? All right, so folks know what it's like to work for beer and pretzels and to do things into the wee hours. And, you know, and, and there's, there's a little bit of that that is going to be part of any entrepreneurial experience. But the thing I always had to deal with, that if you've started a company, you've probably had to deal with it the most, is explaining to your parents and your grandparents, what are you doing? Because when, you, when, you t when your parents hear that, okay, you went to medical school, okay, you started surgery residency, and okay, now you're, you're what? You're leaving surgery residency? You're going to do what? So it was always very challenging to explain to them that I wasn't a particularly patient person. I wasn't particularly tolerant of systems that I just thought were incredibly arcane and outdated and required me to do work that I should not have to do after going to school for 18 years. And back in the day when we were starting all this up, there really wasn't a great vehicle to explain exactly what we were doing. But just to set the stage, I was fortunate in that we've recently... Uh, this is a video clip that was, uh, that's from a local television station in Illinois where one of our clients has recently gone live. And I'm just going to, this will give you an idea for what it is that I was devoting the last six years of my life to doing.
patient's information anytime, anywhere. Here's how it's wor it works. First, there was music and videos. Now doctors can download their patient's medical information. Lab tests, follow-up studies, even my own radiology reports I'm able to get now on my PDA. It's healthcare on the move. This new Mercury MD mobile patient data system allows doctors life-saving information right at their fingertips. I can make decisions in a much uh, quicker way. I can keep my patients informed. It just really has cut literally hours and sometimes days out of the loop of getting this information. Officials expect the new system will also cut down on errors by providing information on medication, discharge summaries, even a patient's medical history. It's the perfect setup for any resident or student as they make their rounds. They could all be looking at the same information at the same time. There are a number of wireless access points throughout the hospital where doctors can download their information. They can also do so through their wireless cell phone, the internet, and for those who don't have a wireless connection, they can sync up through the infrared system. As for security, the information is encrypted, so your privacy is always protected. It's only accessible by the doctor that is linked to that patient. If he loses a device, it actually sort of self-destructs its data uh, after some failed attempts to get into it. The new system went online December 11th. Access is limited to physicians, residents, and medical students, but hospital officials say they hope to expand on that in the future. Also saves a lot of time, time to research those records. It sure does. Great thing. <laughs> I just love that. That's just, and you know, for me, seeing that is, it's, it would, it would have just been fantastic if I had that news clip available when we were explaining what we were going to accomplish. But obviously, at one point, you don't. All you have is an idea. You've got a problem. There's something that you've identified that's a particular pain point for you. But it's not just you. It's an entire hospital. It's an entire industry. It's the entire world. And you've got an idea about how you can make that pain go away. And the thing that I didn't realize when I was starting out is that for me, engineering was all about solving problems. And when I think about the attributes of my engineering education, I found engineering to be extremely collaborative. There's a lot of getting together in groups to do things and to solve problems. It was competitive, but it wasn't competitive in the sense that my pre-med colleagues in the biology department were all scrambling to be on the edge of the curve for the exam. It was competitive in the sense that you're always pushing yourself and you're pushing your team and you're pushing, you're pushing your organization to achieve the goals of the project or to come up with the best design. So it's a collaborative sort of competition. And it's very pragmatic because you're always in an environment where you're constrained by reality. It's not completely theoretical. It's something where you're trying to solve a problem given a certain set of resources. How are you going to go about doing that? And it's inherently creative but at the same time, you learn processes to think about and to characterize problems, and you define processes that you use to help solve those problems, and it's problem-focused and solution-oriented. So when you think about what engineering is, and you start to look at the world around you, all of a sudden, you find a lot of opportunities. And really what I want to spend the most time talking about once you get through the introduction is how you go about bringing the solution to market. But before you're going to bring a solution to market, You've got to find something that really lights your fire. It's got to be something you're passionate about because you're going to be living it. You're going to be loving it or not, as the case may be, depending on how things are going. And it's got to be a big enough problem that it's worth doing something about. But once you find the problem, solve it, or figure out a way to solve it, then the challenge is, now what? Let's get this solution to market. So as we spend the next few minutes talking about this, really all I wanted to do was share the experience that we had locally building a startup in this environment in a particular industry, but recognizing that a lot of these themes and, and, and the reason we were able to make some decisions along the way 
weren't specific to healthcare, they weren't specific to software, but they're general problems that anyone runs into as you, as you look to start something off. In the process of doing this, I actually reached way back into the vaults and I came up with some of the original pitch slides that Alan Ying, my co-founder, and I were using raising money back in 2000, 2001. So you're also going to see how our PowerPoint skills improved over the course of fundraising over a couple of years. But initially, the goal is very simple. You need to explain the problem in a way that a potential customer or a potential uh, an investor can understand. And for us, the challenge was very, very simple. Clinicians, and doctors in particular, are absolutely dependent on data to make decisions. When I step into the hospital, I need to know who my patients are, where they're located, what are their test results, what are their medications, and what are their orders. Until I know that information, I don't even know where I'm going. And the systems that currently exist, when I was a resident at a hospital not too far away from here, that require you to show up for pre-rounding at 4 a.m. before rounds at 6 a.m., but when you're pre-rounding, you're not actually seeing the patient necessarily. You're, you're hunting down labs. You're hunting down the flow sheet. You're writing stuff down onto index cards. It's the data that makes the difference between being able to make a good decision. And how that data gets to the clinician is something that is typically a maze and subject to a lot of personal and institutional variability. And this is still the case, and if, you know, unless things have changed in the past year or two, and certainly ten, four, five, ten years ago, this is the rounding card at Duke Hospital for the surgery service. And you got your surgery residents, they got a stack of these things, and if you squint, you can kind of read it, and you hope the person that went on shift before you has really good handwriting, but is that, you know, is that Depakote or is that Dilantin or what are they allergic to? Is that Dilantin? Or, I don't, it just gets to be very cumbersome. And this is, for all intents and purposes, what it means to gather and manage clinical information in a paper-based world. You're dealing with a variety of systems that the hospital has installed. Those systems are designed to store information for the hospital, not necessarily to make it accessible for me as an individual clinician. And that's fundamentally the pain point that I experienced that every clinician experiences, and whether you're in an academic setting where you're the low man on the totem pole or woman on the totem pole that's pushing the information up for consumption by the upper levels, or whether you go out into practice and you've got to either manage this process yourself in the community, or you've got to hire a PA or a nurse practitioner to work with you and, and deal with this friction on a daily basis, the problem is universal, is universal. So our idea was very simple gosh, wouldn't it be great if we could just get all this stuff, magically put it together, and just drop it onto a PDA? This is back in the early days of Palm 3s and Palm 5s and people beaming their business cards back and forth. And, you know, the, the, this is bef before I understood economic cycles and boom busts and, and, and the tech boom of the 90s, and I was actually living it without realizing it, there was a lot of cool stuff going on, and we figured there had to be a way to get this information into a mobile device. So then you have this beautiful slide, and, and trust me, when you see our later slides, you'll appreciate how much we improved our, in our communication ability once we got a little bit of money and, and real help and marketing in the door. But the problem is that you've got a bunch of systems in the hospital. You've got a radiology system, a lab system, a pathology system, dictation, pharmacy, patient, all this stuff is in different bins and different systems, and it's all flowing hither and yon with various electronic interfaces how are you going to get it? So you've got to be very pragmatic in your approach to pulling all this information out, bringing it to a central location, 
and then moving it in a particular a safe and a secure way to a user's mobile device. So based on one, two, three, four slides here, is there anyone who would just give me $8 million to build a company out of this today? Good. That's pretty much the response. So I, I think no, no, no hands were raised for the audience that's uh, not here. But those four slides alone were not enough to convince anybody to pony up and turn this into a company. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Because for us, it's one thing to have an idea. It's another thing to do something with it and take that idea and bring it to the market. Uh, when we started this, it was simply trying to solve a personal pain point. It was simply trying to say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could do something within the university that would make life a little bit better. But when you try to do things in, 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 a, in a way to make a difference, you begin to realize, well, you know, it's not, if I spend a lot of time and effort trying to build something once and tailoring it to systems at Hospital X, that's not necessarily going to scale or be replicable or make a difference for somebody at Hospital Y. And this is a universal problem. So it makes sense to go about trying to make a company out of this. The way we did it, which isn't the best way, but is the way we did it, was we started out raising money from friends and family. And we had a common round of fundraising where in the, in, in all the, through the year 2000, we basically worked with our attorneys, crafted a private placement memorandum, which said this new company, Mercury MD, is raising money. Now to do that, you've got to put your thumb in the air and you've got to set a valuation on the company. And that's very important because that valuation that you choose at that early stage is based upon nothing but your investor's faith in you and the idea and the intellectual property and your ability to execute it. And frankly, 99% of the time or a, or a significant percentage of the time, common rounds of funding from friends and family is basically equivalent to flushing the money down the toilet because you really don't have a basis for judging how that technology and how, how that technology is going to act when you try to bring it to market. So the, I, the issue of valuation for the common shareholder is one that is, it's, it's very challenging to deal with. And the way we dealt with it was just based upon saying, well, let's pick a number. Let's say when we're starting off, we think this idea is worth a million bucks. Why? I don't know. Is it because we think the market for healthcare IT is 16 billion and we're some percentage of that? Well, not really. We just, million dollars, nice round number, start there. Bottom line was we need to get some money in the door so we could hire a few people, build a prototype, build a proof of concept, so that the decision to set a valuation on the company at that early day is, is something that you do knowing that your first investor is literally your father-in-law. And you're kind of stuck with them regardless of what happens, so it doesn't really matter if he pays a little bit more or a little bit less than the next guy. But as you go down the road a little bit further, and fast forward six months, okay, you found some programmers on the internet. They're great guys. They think, it's a, they, they think it's a rational thing to move from Austin, Texas to Durham, North Carolina, to live in a hotel off of I-40, to work for two guys who are still residents in the hospital and who they see on the weekends when they're post-call and falling asleep in front of them. You get the idea. I mean, it's, it's sort of a suboptimal environment to build a business, but you're doing what you can and what you need to do. And we found great, great guys who who captured the vision, who understood the vision, and were willing to go out on a limb and take a stake in it and make it happen. So based upon that initial seed round of funding, we were able to get to the point where we had a prototype. We had something that we could take to institutional investors, to local angel groups. And this is where, as you look at taking it to the next step, you begin to say, all right, what is it that separates a business plan from a business model? 
Well, at some point, it's the customer. It's somebody who's actually seen the product, who is willing to pay money for it, who's willing to talk about it, and who's willing to say, yes, not only is this an idea, it's actually something that works and something that we're willing to deploy. So we realized quite quickly that the prototype wasn't enough, and we had to go beyond a prototype to actually getting that installed, implemented in a real live environment where folks could talk about it, because we still believe that much in the idea. So the distance between the common friends and family round of basically just shaking the trees, talking to folks we know, and you know, $10,000 here, $5,000 here, $2,000 here, beer and pizza and lots of code and late nights and working literally out of the garage to actually saying, okay, now we've got a customer who's ready to get, get behind this. That required us to get somebody, our early adopter, our first client, who was willing to let us play ball. It just so happened that there's a very progressive health system about an hour to the west of us, the Mo Moses Cone Health System, and we met with their CIO, very nice gentleman, who took a look at my co-founder and myself in our short white coats, showing up post-call with this nifty little mobile device that we said we could make his doctors much more efficient and happy. And he looked at us, didn't really believe what we were saying, but said, all right, just don't hurt anything, and I'm not going to pay you anything unless it works. I'm like, okay, that's fine, fair enough. So with that, we had license to basically go in get our first customer, get our first implementation, and just work it. And that's really what we did. And honestly, that was enough for me, because at some point you have to kind of make the decision, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And when you're making the decision to say, okay, on the one hand, I've got surgery residency. And that's a fairly predictable path. I know I'm going to work really hard. This was before the days of the 80-hour work week. So it was more like, you know, 100-hour work week or a little bit more than that. But... You know you're going to work hard for a period of years. You know you're going to make yeah, about $33,000, $35,000 for the next five or six years. And yeah, it's tough to raise a family on that. And yeah, I've got medical school debt and undergraduate debt. So financially, it's a bit of a sacrifice. But you know that at some point, you're expecting there to be a payoff. On the other hand, there's this entrepreneurial thing. And there's the $10,000 you took from your father-in-law because you thought this is a really cool idea. And now you're beginning to realize it's going to take a little more than that $10,000 to make it happen. And I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know what's going to be involved. There's a lot of uncertainty there. But for me, the certainty of the surgery career with a growing expectation for what the system was going to be like if I didn't do something about it, and the uncertainty of just leaving and going all in with this idea of Mercury MD, for some strange reason, the balance shifted towards the uncertainty. And my, both my co-founder and I left residency in the, in, in, uh, with the turn of the new year in 2001 and said, okay, we're ready to do this full time. And in doing so, we're going to bring this pilot customer up. We're going to get funded. We're going to turn this idea into a product and into a company and make something of it. So long story short, the implementation, blood, sweat, and tears, the first one was fine because we put all of our effort and all of our focus on getting that one client side up. And once we did that, we were at the position where we had lots of happy doctors in Greensboro talking about how this magic information on their little palm PDA was making them so much more efficient. And one thing you've got to understand is that if you find a niche, if you find a market that is traditionally underserved and do a really, really good job serving it, you will have a lot of success and it will be very easy, relatively speaking, to get traction. And when you think about what healthcare IT is from the perspective of clinicians and doctors, it's pretty much the wasteland of IT. Healthcare IT is not, you know, the best and the brightest typically have not aspired to go into healthcare IT for some reason. I don't know why they much rather go into financial services or, you know, build wonderful applications like Microsoft Office. 
But when you look at some of the systems that are in hospitals today, that remain in hospitals today after 20 or 30 years, they're kind of slow and cumbersome. And that's changing gradually. And the past 10 years have definitely shown an improvement. But we went into an environment where it would take you a couple minutes to log on to a workstation. And it would take you 17 mouse clicks in a minute to pull up information for one patient's labs. And you've got 20 patients in the hospital all over the place, and you're walking from room to room. You've got to log on, log off, log on, log off. You're spending an hour a day just waiting for the computer to think. And all of that, along with rising malpractice and declining reimbursement, and doctors are not a happy bunch of people. And every time the IT department comes out with something new, they're not all that thrilled about it because they just feel like they're always getting beaten up by the latest maladjusted technology being forced onto their workflow. So when you actually come up with something that hits a nerve and solves a pain point for a group that's underserved, that gets some interest. And that's really, as we got from the end of our common round into the, into the point of time, we're trying to raise money now in early 2001. Well, actually, more specifically in March, April of 2001. For those of you who have looked at or studied the markets, you'll remember that March and April of 2001 was a very interesting time in the equity markets. And the folks that were very, very eager to invest in 99 and the boom years of 2000 were all of a sudden not so eager to invest anymore. Uh, we, so we started, after our first site was implemented, we started trying to raise money in 2001. And it was really, really tough. And we're like, why is it so difficult? At this point, again, coming from a strict engineering background, I'd never heard of a business cycle before. I didn't, I didn't watch CNBC. I didn't know what was going on. But it was abundantly clear that that was absolutely the worst time in the world to begin trying to raise money. Fortunately, because what we were doing really, really affected these doctors at this first hospital in such a meaningful way, that it actually got the attention of the CEO of the health system, who had never heard of doctors being excited of IT before, which then got to the investment committee of the hospital, which then got to us doing a pitch, our doing a pitch in front of the investment committee of the hospital, and the wise gentlemen who managed that investment committee were quite clear and say, well, it's not appropriate for the hospital to put its money into this sort of venture. But this is pretty compelling, so I think we might be able to orchestrate a, a round of investment around this. And that was the beginning of our basically Series A, Series B fundraising, which was the direct result of our simply showing up to the game and doing what we said we were going to do in a market that was otherwise pretty miserably served. So the idea of raising the money was something that we knew we needed to do. We had a Going into this, we really had no idea what we needed or how much we needed or how we were going to spend it. But as you start getting to the point of building an organization out of the product, your business plan and your idea for how you're going to use the capital and approach the market becomes clearer. But really for us, it was the leap between going from friends and family who were willing to give you money based upon knowing you and based upon the promise of you're going to work hard to actually getting involved with a group of, in this case, sophisticated individual investors who had their own businesses, who had grown their own businesses, who knew what it was like to build something, who were able to take a rational look at our projections, our financials, our budget, how we were going to use the money, discount that appropriately, and then through a process of very painful pushing and pulling, come to an agreement for how we were going to structure our significant round of fundraising. And all, we ended up raising about $8 million. We actually closed the round in uh, September of 2001, right? right after 9-11, and it was the sort of thing that as we went through that process, we began to realize, man, this was 
a very, very interesting experience because when you go from, and one of the lessons that I took home from this is that you want to raise as much money as you need, but you don't want to raise any more. And a case in point for that is that we do have, and we had one, one primary competitor in this space of mobile IT for physicians, and they started raising money back when money was flowing. Back in the late 90s, they raised their first, they were in the 50 millions. They raised, you know, overall they've raised about $70 million compared to the around $8 million that we raised. And when you, when you compare that and you look at what it does to raise, what, what's involved in raising $70 million and returning value to your investors versus raising $8 million and returning value to your investors, you can see that if you take in too much money for the market you're trying to address and for the revenues that you expect to grow and for the way in which you're going to attack the market, you end up in a situation where that extra money actually becomes a liability because that, that then limits your ability to get subsequent fundraising. It limits the exit that you're potentially going to be able to accept based upon your investors' predisposition towards the return that they want to get. So you, you want to be very selective about raising as, you want to raise as much as you need but no more than you need. But the other important point is you want to raise it before you need it. You don't want to go out trying to raise money when you need the money. You want to go out when you're raising money in a position of strength. It sounds obvious, but very much for us, looking back, lessons learned that were very important. The other thing that you need to be careful of is being conservative about the valuation in the, in, in the early stages. And this is one thing that for me personally was, was not so much a regret as just a lesson learned, but when you put your thumb up in the air, yes? Well, and that's the great question. When we sat down, and the question is, how did we know we needed 8 versus 70? When we looked at, rationally, how we were going to grow the business, we went from having a set of financials that were literally thumb up in the air, extrapolating on an Excel spreadsheet, ramping up based on a percentage that we thought we could hit, to an actual budget that says, this is what it's going to cost us to go to the industry annual trade show. This is how big our sales force needs to be. This is how many hospitals our sales force can call on on a, uh, on a weekly, monthly basis. This is how long we're going to take getting customers through the decision process to purchase this system. This is how much we're going to pay our salespeople. This is how much we're going to pay our, 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 our uh, marketing people. This is how much we're going to pay our product development team. And this is how we're going to scale this up. It was that level of budgeting in terms of the specificity of the use of funds that allowed us to say, okay, if we raise $8 million, we can grow at this rate for this period of time, over which period of time we need to see this kind of ramp in our revenue. Otherwise, we did something wrong. And that is the process. When I talk about getting together with the right investor, getting together with the right investment group, we had the, while we didn't have the benefit of experience in doing this for the first time, we had the benefit of working with, as our own organization with a good group of experienced managers who had done this before, who helped us get to that level of a nuanced business plan for how we were going to use the funds. And we were also were talking with a group of sophisticated investors who could add more value than simply writing a check, who could question our assumptions and say, well, in my experience, this might be a little low. Are you thinking about this? So that's a long answer to a very, very important question. But you need to set out and put together the plan for what targets you want to hit. Because if you don't, and just take as much money as you can get, there's no, there's, there's no guarantee you're going to use that capital effectively. And the only thing worse than uh, taking too much is taking too little. So it's, but that's, that's a very important question. So again, understanding how your use of capital, how, how much capital you get, how that affects your growth and your exit opportunities. Also understanding that as you're making that jump from the wild-ass guess to a 
rational, well-researched, disciplined set of projections and the use of funds. Granted, you're always going to have assumptions, and those assumptions are going to vary widely depending on who you talk to. But as you make that jump, that's going to affect the issue of valuation. And for us, we had a situation where, as we were going through our friends and family round, we were making really good progress. And we were going through, and we would, uh, we, we would have technical breakthroughs, we'd have partnership breakthroughs, we'd have great opportunities that would show up. And the valuation that we assigned, and really when you're talking to the friends and family investors, the price that you sell the stock at, so to speak, it varies based upon what the market, or in this case, the other investors willing to pay. So we had some, some of our earlier investors who paid less than some of our later investors because we were making progress, and objectively we were making progress, but subjectively we were assigning a value to that progress, and the other person bought it because they trusted us and liked us. At the end of the day, that subjective question of how you value the company gets really tested when you sit down with a group of sophisticated investors around a structured business plan and a model for the use of proceeds because that then gives you projections that if you hit those projections provide a rational metric with market comparables that will help you establish the value of your company in the marketplace compared with other people that are doing that. So what we found out was is that when we raised that Series B round, the Series B investors who came in, they paid more than some of the common investors, but they paid less than some of the other common investors. And it's one of those things that while in the end it all turned out very well for everybody, it was a situation where no one ever wants to do a down round in the venture world. When you're doing a startup and an early investor comes in and things don't go as well as you plan and you have to raise additional money and the valuation of the company actually goes down because things haven't gone very well, the down round is something you, you really want to avoid. And it's also really nice to avoid if your father-in-law is the one getting down-rounded. Because so, it's just something to keep in mind. So, there, and there are some creative ways around that in the sense that it's possible as you're getting down the path of, being, uh, of, of building the business case and building the plan and working with sophisticated investors, you can actually take money in not based upon assigning a strict valuation to the company but based upon saying, you know what, we'll take this in as a bridge loan to get us to this round of funding that we're working on with a group of sophisticated investors and you'll come in at that valuation and then giving that person who's willing to put money in now with greater uncertainty at least the level of certainty that they're going to get as good a deal as the person who's really helping you do your homework. So there are some other ways to do it. Just again, another lesson learned, but in the end we're fortunate that things turned out well. So what ends up happening? Once you get the money in, your slides start looking like this, which is really kind of cool. You learn how to communicate, and it doesn't take really ornate, graphically oriented. It's just very simple. Hey, this is the problem we're trying to solve. Who are my patients? Where are they located? What are their results? What are their medications? This is how this problem is currently being solved. We're going to fix all that with this nifty block diagram here that makes all your problems go away. And all of a sudden, the hospitals start calling, and the CIOs are very excited, and the doctors are very excited, and the investors are very happy. Life's much better once you have real marketing people that can do nice things with graphics. And here's how we're going to do it. Here's a picture of mData delivering, delivering the data. So all the information. And just a comment about the pragmatism and, and what's involved in getting something like this to market. This is engineering at its best right here. This is a picture of our infrared access points. When we started doing this, we knew the need was there. We knew that clinicians desperately needed this information to make rounds. 
we knew that doctors had started carrying around, ourselves included, this free drug reference called Hippocrates. It was freely downloadable off the internet. Everyone's got a palm pilot with Hippocrates on it. It's a great tool. But these infrared devices, these little palm organizers with an infrared port for beaming business cards, these are not network computers. How are you going to go about downloading this information onto your PDA? Yes, they all have a cradle, but there are 50 different PDAs and 50 different cradles, and cradles require a computer, and you can't have a bunch of cradles hanging off a nursing station PC. How are you going to do this? Well, fortunately, and this was a key enabler for us, and also remain, remains part of the infrastructure, but it's less important nowadays, we were able to find a company that specialized in these infrared dongles, for lack of a better word, that let you do TCP IP networking over an IRDA port, which is the infrared port that these palm and pocket PC devices still use today. And now granted, these guys were selling something that was a 16-port switch that you'd fit into a server rack that you plug wires into, and then you run a wire, and it's got this plastic thing that looks like a horseshoe that you just would do something with. So it wasn't really packaged for mass consumption. So, you know, Alan and I actually ended up with our names on two patents that had nothing to do with software, but were for physical designs of a housing to take this hardware and package it up into an enclosure that would allow a hospital to quickly and easily take one of these infrared switches, but now they're not mounting it in a closet. They're just slapping it on a counter or, or next to the coffee pot during, in the office, in, in the uh, doctor's lounge or in the nursing station, and plugging it into the wall, plugging it into a network port. And now any doctor using any device that's got an infrared port can drop their device in this, you know, this nifty little pocket. And it's kind of... This is very zen-like. You can imagine these devices being bathed in this, you know, this, this bath of infrared radiation that's enlightening them. So it's, it's, very, it's a very neat image. And, and we also got a lot of nifty comments from our customers. They'd ask if this was a new bagel warmer or something. But no, it's, it's forgetting your data. But when you think about the things that are required, there were other companies who, over the same time period that we were doing this, were trying to do this they didn't necessarily take the effort to go the last mile. And we had some of our competitors that were recommending that their clients build the stuff that we patented and were reselling and were getting a royalty on because we knew we needed to cover that last mile in getting the data down to the device. So you've got to be absolutely relentless in identifying what are the potential barriers to adoption, what are the potential barriers to use, and you can't leave any stone unturned because if we'd gone out there saying, here's this wonderful system, and all you have to do is tell your docs to use one type of device and install a cradle at every nursing station computer and they'll be able to stand in line, it wouldn't have worked because everyone's carrying their own devices. No one wants to deal with a PC. This is not a PC-centric thing. This is about mobility, easy to use. So just, you know, there's always going to be that example of the area where you can go above and beyond what the rest of the industry is willing to do that will create and preserve a competitive differentiator for you. So then to spend just a few minutes about the business. And this was the part that, you know, as much as engineering prepares you to attack the technical aspects of the problem, it's really the collaborative nature of it and the team building exercises and what you go through in solving problems together as a group that I think was the biggest lesson. Because ultimately, it's about people, process, and technology, and it's in that order. You don't think about it in reverse. Ultimately, you're about taking care of customers, and you're about solving problems and creating value for your customers. You're about process. It helps you learn how to do the right thing and then do it consistently. And you're about being scalable through the use of technology once you've figured out the right thing to do. So a couple lessons we learned on the er very, very early on is the first and most important one is you can't buy care. 
And Alan coined this saying, and I just absolutely love it to this day, because where we were coming from, we couldn't afford to pay anybody money initially. You know, it was literally, it was literally beer and pretzels and, you know, maybe some peanut butter for protein, but that was about it. And when we had these guys come up from Austin to live in the hotel and work with us for this stuff, you know, we gave them a share of the equity in the company and said, hey, we don't know where this will go, but, you know, this is what we got. We're working on resident salaries and here you go. Here's a laptop. Have at it. This is what we want to accomplish. And it's because you can, it's your ability as the entrepreneur to define and articulate and communicate a vision for the problem you're going to solve. That's what it is that makes it worth doing. And that's what it is that allows you to find people who also glom onto that and understand that, hey, you know what, this is something where the salary is important, but there's something more important at stake here. I'm doing this because I really enjoy doing it. And that only goes so far, and you have to recognize and embrace the eventual transition that occurs, because once we went from 2 to 4 to 10 to 20 to 50 to 70 people, as we got further into growing the business and turned into a company, you start attracting different sorts of folks that were working with you. So all of a sudden, once we became a company with a real office, after we had the funding and we had a client services team with great management and great leadership, we're recruiting and we're bringing people in who don't necessarily want to work 80 hours a week. They want a good job that they enjoy doing with fun people that they love working with, but they don't necessarily expect to be burning the midnight oil and working for nothing. So you have to recognize and embrace that while you, while you always want to find people that see the vision and grasp the vision and want to go to bat for that, You've got to recognize the transition and understand that while the person that shows up day one and is willing to put it all on the line and work 24 hours straight to get something done, that person, if he or she doesn't work well with other people as part of a team, might not make the transition to be part of the bigger company that you're destined to become. And you have to just recognize it, not fear it, not avoid it, but have those discussions and find out how people can adjust and what, how people want to adjust and make that transition, accept, uh, make it transition appropriately. And it's also important to develop and nurture leadership at every level. Initially, it's just you and the folks that you're starting the initiative with, your, 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 your co-founder, your partners, folks you bring in very, very early on. The leadership is provided by the folks who see the organization. And it's the ability to effectively transfer that vision to the folks that are then leading the teams that grow to grow the technology, to grow the client solutions, to grow the marketing, to grow the sales. That leadership is absolutely critical. So when you set up an organization that has clear roles and responsibilities, that empowers people to do what needs to be done to hit the goals that everybody sees, and you have the right people on board who, who care, you can do a tremendous amount. Our investors were absolutely shocked. Every board meeting, every month we have a board meeting where our, 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 uh, our board would meet in Durham. And they'd always ask very similar questions. How much longer do we have? That was the big thing. How much longer do we have? Because we're out there... And we're competing in a market for healthcare information technology that's not traditionally regarded as a huge growth market. There is a certain number of hospitals in the country. There are a certain number of hospital systems in the country. And those customers are basically traded between six or seven vendors for big systems. What we were trying to do was to carve out a niche and say, you know what, there's a different sort of product here, a mobile patient data system that you've not budgeted for before, you've not bought before, but it's really important that you buy it because it's going to make your doctors and your nurses and your pharmacists much more effective and safe. That started to work, and the, the board kept wondering, you know, when's this going to end? When's the big guy going to wake up and say, this is ridiculous, I've already got all this data, I'll just do it myself. And what it comes down to ultimately is focused discipline execution by a small group of people. What we used to say is that, look, we're talking about a PDA where you've got, I don't know, 250, 
50 by 160 pixels or something. It's a small screen. And it doesn't matter if you've got a team of 100 to throw at. Throw, if you've got a team of 100 people to throw at a small screen, they're not necessarily going to do any better than our team of four or six or eight. So our ability to focus and get the right people in the game and the big vendors' lack of focus on this particular niche allowed us to thrive for a while under the radar, but frankly, eventually quite well above the radar. On the process standpoint, one thing I learned in engineering, and specifically in my forays into informatics when I got into my uh, research year in, in medical school, there is a tremendous amount of power in, the, in one. There's a tremendous amount of power in one. And what I mean by that is, you know, when I first got into clinical informatics, I was focused very much on just databases, database design. And what's the most important thing in a database? It's what attributes of an entity you use to uniquely identify a record in that database, a row in that table. How do you know that you're looking at the right patient, the right lab result? So the idea that everything you do needs to be done once in one way and the best way and stored once and not having multiple points of truth and multiple sources of information that get commingled or, or out of alignment. And that's something that is fundamental to everything that we tried to do and grow in the company. So we wanted to have a single point of truth for how we managed our customer relationships. We invested in a customer relationship management system that we still use today and, in fact, is being used by the company that acquired us today because it is uniquely effective as a single point of truth about the customers that we serve, the opportunities that we're growing in the market, and how we manage our relationships with our clients. So many large organizations or even small organizations, they grow up and they start to nurture a lot of little cottage databases that are disconnected. If you let things get out of control early, it doesn't get any easier to pull them back together. So a single set of books, a single forecast, a best process, and an underlying vision, always trying to look at that critically and saying, okay, I'm doing it once, and I'm doing it one way, so I only have to fix one thing if it's broken, but am I still doing it the right way? Do my prior assumptions still hold? Do I need to be making some changes to this one process or this one database to really optimize, thing, uh, optimize things? So the process, process piece is really quite important. And... Technology is important too, but it's a tool. And there are a lot of folks out there who sell technology to fix all kinds of problems. But our take-home message and what we learned pretty early on is that the most complicated solution or the most expensive solution is not necessarily the best one. You want to refine the process first, then work to automate it and focus on simplicity and effectiveness. You know, when we started out as a garage shop, we didn't need a product lifecycle management process that had 17 deliverables that had to be delivered and signed off by 13 different supervisors. Now after being part of a much larger organization after the acquisition for a few months, there's some element to that. And you, you have to learn to adapt to what's appropriate for the environment. But certainly, focusing on simplicity and effectiveness is not only a source of strength for a small organization, it's a source of relative competitive advantage when you're competing against much larger players. And finally, going to market. It's all about the customer. You've got to know the customer. You've got to know the pain. You've got to know the problem that you're solving knowing how to communicate with the customer, getting in front of the customer, and then doing what you say you're going to do. And in a lot of cases, that's really hard because the environment you're working in is a fluid environment. You're interacting with systems that are different. There are assumptions at one client that aren't necessarily the same at another client. But it's the singular focus on being the customer's ally and solving that problem that ultimately gets you the positive references that feed back and generate the positive marketing and sales activities for it to again, start to, start to grow. Um, you know, there are a couple great books. I've actually got a slide at the very end with, with just some of the best books that I've enjoyed over the past six years of doing this. But, 
the Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm is a classic that talks about the technology marketplace in particular, but what it's like to start to go from defining a niche, coming up with something that's new and exciting that will certainly appeal to a group of early adopter customers. But once you get those early adopters in the door, what's required to cross the chasm where a lot of technologies fall over to get to mainstream acceptance, where all of a sudden it's not just the engineer that's got the iPod, but your grandmother's got an iPod. And that's the sort of, that, that's the sort of thought process that as you're going to market, as you're refining the technology, as you're refining the way you bring it to the market, that's very, very helpful in helping you focus on the customer and get the messaging through marketing and sales to the customer to help continue to grow the enterprise. In the process, you're gonna, your sales process is going to change. Your marketing process is going to change. When it starts out, if you're doing something truly new, you're defining a niche that perhaps hasn't existed before. Or if it's existed, maybe it's only existed to a very limited extent because the people that have inhabited it or the companies that have inhabited it have kept that niche something that have, have left barriers in that niche that have precluded wider adoption. So you have to start out defining the niche, but eventually you stop defining it and you start exploiting it and growing it and using that niche as a wedge to move into adjacent areas and creating additional value for your customers. And in the process, you start out evangelizing and talking about the benefits of why a customer should understand this problem and why they should think it's important. Once the market realizes that, then you obviously will attract competition and then you have to transition to a more competitive model where you're not just out there evangelizing about how important the need is. They understand that. Now you're actually competing with two or three other vendors that are doing and saying pretty much the same thing. Thanks to the Internet, everybody reads each other's websites and press releases and marketing material. We're all saying the same thing out there. How do you differentiate your organization as you make that transition from defining the niche to exploiting it, from evangelizing to competing, to continue to grow successfully by creating more value for your customer than the competition? So then you do that for a couple of years and the company grows and you've got great results from happy customers and lots of users and folks think this is a really great thing. At some point, you're, and, and always along the way, you're asking the question, okay, now what? What is this that I'm dealing with? Is this, is this the next Google that we're dealing with? Well, maybe not the next Google, but is this something that is going to grow to become a $10 million organization, a $100 million organization, a billion dollar organization? What's the likely outcome, what's the life cycle of this product, this technology, this company. And a lot of this gets into just being able to rationally step back, forgetting that this is maybe in some cases it's your baby, it's something you've poured your heart and soul into, but just say, okay, what are the dynamics in the marketplace? What is the standalone potential of what I'm doing now versus uh, today versus what it will be five years from now? What are other opportunities to grow the organization? What's it going to take to raise additional money to take advantage of those growth opportunities? And what are some potential opportunities for strategic combination? How can I pick up another company that will make me a lot stronger, another piece of technology, or grow that organically? Or, or in our case, what turned out to be the, the, the proper path was looking at an acquisition by a company that had a lot to gain by leveraging the data integration platform that we developed and honed over the past five years. Because it's that rational assessment and the ability to step back that really helps you plot out a course that can create the most value for your investors, for your customers, for your employees, and ultimately coming to the best understanding of what eventually should happen with this organization. And there are a lot of opportunities to make missteps along the way and to make the wrong decision, to take money when you shouldn't have taken money, to go down a path of 
of a strategic initiative or an acquisition or starting something that's a distraction from the core business. So this is a very important step, and it's exceedingly important. And again, back to the, back to the point about it's not just the, it's, it's equally important that you know who your investors are and you want the right investors, not just any investors, but having the right strategic advice and the right folks around the table with you when you're having these discussions to help you sort out these opportunities because there are a lot of potentials to uh, stray from the guardrails that are, that are guiding you towards a successful conclusion. So one thing I did want to talk about, and this is, this is somewhat of a result of my coming out of the university setting and seeing what was involved at the time and, and identifying a problem at or while practicing in a university hospital but then wanting to create a company based upon that, is that you know, this is, I think, a great time to be in a position that you all are in. And when you look at what's going on with the Master's in Engineering Management program and the opportunity to start putting the pieces together from technology and business and, and commercializing, thing, commercializing things, technology transfer in 2007 is, I think, a lot more... Uh, we're a lot more progressive as a university than we were back certainly in 2001. And one of the things that Christina Johnson did when she came in is helped with the formation of a company called Tech, Southeast Tech Adventures, which is really an incubator that has a licensing agreement with Duke that is specifically geared towards helping to speed in the commercialization and the incubation of ideas that come out of academia. In the past, there hasn't really been a clear path for technology transfer out of the organization in the sense that there hasn't been an organization with the skill and the expertise and the experience to continue to incubate an idea, to bring in additional grant funding, to help recruit a management team, and to really help with the nuts and bolts of getting something from the lab to the marketplace. What we did was the result of, frankly, a lot of hard work by a lot of, hard, by a lot of very talented and gifted people and we were only able to do it because we were able to find those people and bring them to the table early on in the life cycle. And we were able to find people willing to listen and talk to folks uh, like myself and my co-founder who really had no basis or experience to speak from when we started. But I think something like STI gives people in your, in, in your position as well as anybody in the university setting an important leg up because now you've got someone that you can talk to that can credibly assess the strength of what you're trying to put together. If they don't know the answer, they can find somebody who does provide more specific, focused advice based upon what, you're, what, what technology or what market you're trying to, trying to attack, and then help to align the incentives so that as an inventor or as an investigator or a professor, you've got your owner's stake preserved. The university is in a position to take a reasonable position that doesn't preclude or will still encourage additional investors and licensees to continue to create value there in a way that doesn't cut the initiative off at the point when it might otherwise leave the university. So one of the things that I've been really impressed with and one of the reasons that I actually, um, actually got hooked back into the, the uh, engineering school was my involvement with STI and I think it's a, a great organization with a lot of potential. So if you know someone who is looking to bring something out of the university, um, this is their website, southeasttechadventures.com and the folks there have a lot of good examples of this already at work in terms of the portfolio companies that have come out of the engineering school to date. So sort of in closing, in my experience, I found business to be pretty much everything that engineering was. But there's a lot more. And 
the thing that I'd leave you with is that while business, yes, it's collaborative, competitive, pragmatic, creative, process-based, problem-focused, solution-oriented, it's a lot more. And the thing that kept me afloat and really kept me going during this process was I never stopped reading. And the thing that, the thing that you want to really hone in on as you're getting into this, and you guys are doing this in a very formal, disciplined way through an actual program to bring together engineering and business, uh, I didn't have necessarily that advantage, but I read a lot of great books. I actually, for a take-home, you, you, you may have and probably have read a number of these just in the course of your business education. You know, that some of these are business books. Some of these are market and economy and how the business, you know, what, what is the impact of the business cycle in the markets and what is going on in, in Washington and New York and Chicago relative to how people are feeling fear and greed and all this wonderful stuff that makes our economy hum. There are a lot of variables that go into ultimately buying low and selling high, which is at every level what's happening when you're creating value in the marketplace. So I learned a tremendous amount over the past six years by doing, but a lot of that was anchored in reading a lot of good books. So if you haven't read any of these, I, I highly recommend them. They're all, they're all pretty good books. Um, in particular, that beating the business cycle one is one that I found fascinating and extraordinarily pragmatic. And when you start to appreciate what's going on around you, on a daily basis from that perspective, you begin to see that the same cycles that have occurred and continue to occur in every market all over the world, they've always been happening and they're always going to happen. And if you're interested in why those are happening, you can read more about the Fed and the monetary system and how all this stuff is linked together. Um, there's, there's a lot of good stuff there. So just a few closing thoughts. You can take that for what it's worth. And at this point, be open to any questions or discussions or any, any subsequent comments that folks would like to make. Yes, and I will be sure to paraphrase the question when it's asked so people listening can hear it as well. Yes? So you mentioned that your company was a target of an acquisition. So I was wondering if you could describe what they're talking about. Sure, great, great question. Actually, and actually, I didn't quite go into that in, in enough detail. The, um, when you start talking about the strategic options and, and where you, what you're going to do and, and who you're going to be when you grow up, we were at the point in mid-2005 where we had grown the business. You know, we had, at that point, over 100 clients. We had over 200 hospitals that were using the system. We had lots of happy docs. But what had we done? We'd created a valuable niche. We were now competing for business in the niche we created. What were, what were we going to do next? And keeping in mind that we're still living in a market that's dominated by five or six large HIS vendors that kind of trade up the 5,500 hospitals amongst themselves and fight for those dollars. What we've, we, I, I personally saw ourselves in a situation that was quite similar to the situation that, for example, TiVo did. What did TiVo do? TiVo came out and they revolutionized the way that people interact with broadcast media. Anyone with half a brain nowadays doesn't watch commercials because they've got things on their DVR and they watch it when they want to watch it on their terms. Now, what did TiVo do in the process? They carved out a valuable niche. They defined something that changed consumer behavior. But if you think about what ended up happening to TiVo versus what, or what's, hap what's happened to TiVo versus what happened to Scientific Atlanta, who was it that really won the battle of the DVR? Scientific Atlanta, they came in, not first to market, but they were able to get on top of the cable companies and move these DVRs out through the market. They got bought out by Cisco. That was a pretty good thing for them. Um, not to say that TiVo doesn't have its advantages and isn't for many people the preferred platform, but you've got to be conscious of the fact that there's going to be risk in continuing to trying to grow 
if you don't know that you can get out of the box that you've created for yourself. So for us, we were going through a strategic assessment of what we wanted to do, and we knew that the value of what we had done was not just the mobile piece. And that was the big part for us, is that what we set out to do was enable clinicians to be more effective by having mobile access to information, but in the process of doing so, we were creating a standalone integrated database of clinical information at every hospital where we installed our system. And at many of our clients, that was the only source of integrated clinical knowledge that existed. And that alone had value for that client, but it also had more value when you started to put the pieces together and do it at 100 hospitals, 200 hospitals. So we started looking at growth opportunities focused on continuing to penetrate the market with our core product, but then starting to leverage this distributed database of healthcare information that, when appropriately used, is of potentially enormous value for everybody. And we're living this now where we're talking about personal health records and how do we get access to our information across different healthcare systems in a scalable and, and secure fashion. We've got to start by somehow getting access to it in a consistent way. And that's what we are doing. And at that point, you know, second to the VA, we had the largest network of integrated, you know, integrated um, clinical databases in the country. So when you looked at that and we started looking at how can we grow this in the most appropriate fashion, we had to look at what it would take to get outside of that box. And as it turned out, we were going down the path of raising money based upon a growth plan and we were talking with venture capital firms, which for us would be our first foray into institutional investors because our initial round was raised with sophisticated individuals. But over the course of those discussions, we attracted, and it was completely unrelated, but we were approached by Thompson, who as a publishing organization has been making the transition from referential-based content, which you pull up on a web page and look things up, to really wanting to focus more on workflow solutions. Well, if they want to focus on workflow solutions as an organization, what do they need access to? They need access to the real-time clinical information that clinicians need right now, because otherwise they're trying to provide a web page with information that is generic and useful, but it's disconnected from the workflow of the, of the physician. So in our case, that turned out to be the right answer, because for us to take on the additional risk of raising additional funds and going at it alone in a market that is already very competitive for hospital dollars, we had the opportunity to have an acquirer come in who wanted to make a significant investment in changing their business model and enabling them to offer point-of-care solutions who already had an established customer base of over 3,000 hospitals that were already using their standalone reference. So for me, the goal was always to make the biggest impact in healthcare possible. So it seemed and was arguably the best possible outcome. So at that point, you know, the nuts and bolts of that were basically we had two parallel trains running down tracks for about nine months where we were talking to VCs and evaluating term sheets and raising money and then Thompson would be doing diligence and knocking on the door and, and it, was, it, was, it was kind of difficult in the sense that you don't want to be distracted, you're still trying to run a business, but at some point when Thompson made it clear they were serious about wanting to go through with the acquisition, we put the term sheets on hold, focused on that, and closed the acquisition in May. So it was sort of the long and not necessarily predictable outcome, but the, the long outcome after a protracted series of strategic discussions that put us down the road of saying, okay, what do we want to be when we grow up? And then fortunately having a larger company at the same time asking that very same question and deciding we would be a great vehicle to accelerate their own plans. Yes?
directors. At that point, during your pitches, did you guys present like a estimated cash flow or whatever it would be for this year or right before the acquisition? And I'm not asking for a specific number, but kind of an interesting point. Were you on target, below, or above? That's a great question. And um, as a small company and as a private company, you have the latitude to not widely publicize your projections and your expectations every year. And as a private company, you take full advantage of that. And in the same sense that you're being agile in your processes for evaluating what's going on, we would recast our projections annually based upon what we believe to be our better, continually improving understanding of the market opportunity. So we would always be projecting out what we wanted to hit, but those projections over time would change. So frankly, if you look at the initial business plan that we went out with and talked to my father-in-law about, I mean, the, the spreadsheet that we had had us, you know, we were, I don't know, multi-hundred million dollar company. We were selling ads. We were getting eyeballs. We were doing all this internet.com stuff. Suffice it to say that the business plan we were raising money with in 2005 was not the same business plan that we were talking about with hundreds of millions of dollars from eyeballs and click-throughs and all this kind of stuff. Um, so it, the, 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 the process does change as you go down that path. Yes? Um, you spoke about getting the right team at the right time. And how do you do that when you don't have money and you don't necessarily have the best, uh, as in a very extensive experience of leading companies, so how do you get people to trust you and work on, on sunshine and promises? That's a great question. How do you get people to trust you on Sunshine and Promises when you're just starting out? You don't have a lot of money to pay, with, pay them with. You don't have a lot of credibility. Frankly, you, you need to use non-traditional methods and find people that are willing to take risks. And the individuals who Alan and I hooked up with initially to do the first prototype development of what became the product were guys that we met over the Internet. And these were guys that were between high school and college who were living in Austin, music scene, part, you know, nice place to be. North Carolina is not so bad. Why don't you come up here and work? It'll be really cool, you know. We'll, we'll, and sure. So suffice it to say that, you know, here we are, high and tight, starched white coats, rolling into the hospital, you know, doing, doing the, uh, uh, you know, looking like your typical surgery resident. These guys are sandals, long hair, flip-flops. So, you know, we had to bond. So it was, uh, this, is, this, is not a, this was not a question of putting an ad in the News and Observer and trying to hire somebody away from Cisco. This was, in the early days, it was, but, there, but it's, a, it's the sort of thing where at some level you have to be able to suspend disbelief and question your own assumptions about, and, and honestly just be open to the fact that these are guys who think it's cool to work and they're, not, and they're willing to work for what you're willing to pay. And that's ultimately what it's all about. And for them, it was, a, it was a tremendous growth experience for all of us. And they learned a lot, we learned a lot, so it all worked out really well. Now, they didn't actually end up, to their credit, you know, wanted to go back to college, wanted to get, you know, this, this, this was fun for a period of time. So we, at the appropriate time, when we were turning this into a real company, going through the Series B fundraising, we had to negotiate an appropriate exit with them so that you know, their, their interests as you know, partial founders were preserved they had their equity. They were still vested in the organization, but they knew that, okay, they'd made their contribution. Now they wanted to get back to the rest of their lives and wanted to fin finish their degrees and so forth. So great guys, great part of the experience, and that's, but you had to be, we had to be very creative. And then when we got to the next level where we had a little bit of money, 
you know, I, you know, we were advertising in the uh, Chapel Hill Independent, and that's actually where we, we uh, um, recruited our VP of sales because you, our ads were very non-traditional. We weren't, we weren't sounding like a headhunter looking for a VP of sales. We just, we said, hey, you know, if you're a doer who wants to grab the vision, this is the number you want to call. You know, this is, this is very... <laughs> So you just got, you just got to, there's a little bit of a buzz factor to it. There's just a little bit of just being willing to find the right personality because when you're doing this for the first time, you need to find somebody who's frankly as crazy as you are. And in this case, it turned out to be a great fit. So, <clears throat> yes? What's the biggest hurdle? And that's, that's actually, looking back, what's the biggest hurdle? That's actually the toughest, frankly, the toughest question to answer. And I, I'd answer it in the same way that we answered the, we used to say when we were selling the product, and this is, again, focused on understanding the pain hospitals feel about doctors hating information technology. Usability for a physician is not one big thing. It's a million little things. And in the course of this entrepreneurial journey, the exact, I'd say the exact same thing is true. There wasn't, there wasn't one big hurdle. It was a million little hurdles. And it was all of that. And fortunately, we were able to put together a team that was able to help us to navigate all of that. And so I'd say if you had to go back and, do, and ask why five times and do a root cause analysis to say, okay, what was it? Ultimately, it's about getting the right people. Because if you can get the right people, you can deal with the financial issues. You can deal with the sales issues. You can deal with the technology issues. But it's, when, you're, when you're building a company today and you're building something for the first time and you're not just looking to set up, a, set up a shop where people are working on an assembly line that is not all that cost-effectively done here anymore anyway, you need to find people that understand, grasp the vision, want and want to be a part of it. So in doing so, you leverage that, that, that shared intellectual activity into dealing with the innumerable challenges that exist in all of those areas. Yes? Another great question. So the, so the question is, having protected health information on a mobile device, it's great for doctors, but what about HIPAA? What about patient privacy and security and people getting worried about their devices? And frankly, that is one of those things where we were living during the age of HIPAA coming of, during, HIPAA was passed in, in 96 and the rules kept evolving and guidelines were being put out. And interestingly enough, this is an area where government can actually benefit a startup because what you're doing is you're watching as the rules are being written, and then you turn around with those rules and you use those to your competitive advantage. Because we knew what HIPAA said, and at the same time we're talking to customers with certain expectations, so we were extraordinarily aggressive at identifying this is the bar where our system needs to perform from the perspective of privacy and security. 
yes, we're putting PHI on the consumer devices. Yes, you're right, these devices are not inherently secure. So we need to secure the entire system, and this is how we do it. And we encrypt it in transit, we encrypt it on the device. It's protected by a PIN. If you misenter the PIN, the data gets purged. If the data expires and hasn't been updated in more than a certain amount of time that you specify, CIO, the data gets purged. So you build these fences around that are rational, logical, supported by the market and supported by the, by the regulations, and then you market that aggressively as a competitive advantage. And that's one of those things when you get into the sales process, it actually becomes a tool in your belt, especially as you get bigger and more sophisticated institutions signing up, because all of a sudden people begin to realize, oh, okay, if that 14 hospital system that owns that two-state area thinks this is okay, then clearly we as a small community hospital, we've got to be okay with it too. And it's building the credibility in the marketplace uh, and doing it through aggressively using that Weak, that potential weakness and turning it into an area of strength is something that was a, a good illustration of, of how that can be done. Yes? Have you had to go back and reevaluate and improve the product, the physical product, and have you changed the business path? Constantly. And, uh, well, in terms of the, the product itself, and that's one of the things in software is that, you know, one of our uh, most, most gifted and talented uh, executives, one of the guys we recruited, you know, he, his analogy was, okay, if you're building software, the reason people go into software in particular is because you've got the potential of this nice recurring revenue stream. People pay you every year for maintenance. But that doesn't just show up. It's like an oil well. It's not going to keep pumping forever. You've got to continually refine it and, and keep it. You've, you've got to keep the system optimized. So we were always very focused on, okay, how much R&D are we going to budget for and how do we keep moving the product forward? How do we start changing and enhancing our value proposition so that now all of a sudden we're not just about delivering the clinical information, but now clinicians can capture their charges and, and do their, capture their billing codes and, and generate revenue through this device. And now all of a sudden people can coordinate their handoff activities to this device. So we're always, and, and you're always looking for ways to identify new problems to solve and to move into adjacent areas to make yourself more and more valuable to the client. Yes. Starting overall. overall, how much of a how much of a motivator was money? Initially, it was not a motivator at all because for me, my entire motivation in starting this was absolutely pain avoidance. I intellectually could not deal with the fact that after 18 years of schooling, I'm getting up at four o'clock in the morning to go run around and write numbers down on a little three by five notebook card. That just did not seem rational to me. So the whole idea that I was leaving a $35,000 a year job, which, you know, if you're thinking about money, by the way, don't go into medicine, um, in the first place, that wasn't the motive. But as you start to get into it, you begin to realize that there's real value being created here for the customers. And as you get further down the road, that can actually, the fact that I didn't have any monetary expectations or real, really desires going into it made it somewhat challenging as you start dealing with people who very clearly do. And when you're recruiting a sales organization, you want and you need a sales organization that's coin-operated, that wants to close the deal, that wants to get the customer to sign, that wants to get the money in the door. And being able to understand that, well, maybe I didn't start out that way, you certainly begin to appreciate the value of money as a motivating factor in people's decisions and the absolute importance of leveraging that in compensation structure and how you structure the relationship that you have with different areas of the organization. And then over time, as you start to look at the sweat, blood, sweat, and tears you poured into it, and you start looking at raising additional money or 
having another organization say, great job, here's a, you know, there are some good sides to that too, so. Yes? Great question. So when you're starting and you're raising money with nothing more than an idea, how, do you, how is it that you convince people to give you money? Well, again, like as, as we did in the very, very, very early days, with friends and family, it, you know, literally our first investor was my father-in-law. So you're like, hey, this is really cool. You should do this. Um, there's not a whole lot of competition there, fortunately. But um, <laughs> once you start talking about taking it to the next level, then you have, it's, 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 it's entirely dependent on the dynamics of the market. And this is where, as you start to get out of the technical end of things and the things you're reading on a daily basis change from a textbook to the Wall Street Journal and business, and you start to begin to, you begin to realize there are, different, there are different places you can go to raise money. You can raise money from individual investors. You can raise money from angel groups that are aggregations of individual investors that get together socially or slash for business reasons and make investments as a group. You can go to venture capital firms. You can go to private equity firms. You can go to nonprofits, and there are grant sources. There are tons of sources out there. And the real challenge in terms of how you raise the money is identifying the best funding source for the stage that your idea is at and relative to the market that you're trying to address. You're, we're very fortunate here in the Triangle. We've got, uh, there's this organization called CED, the Council for, for Entrepreneurial Development. We leveraged that a lot while we were getting to know our way around. Um, it's a great way to meet folks who will help you meet the people in the community that are interested in investing. And uh, it's also, frankly, a good reason to hook up with a good law firm. We spent a lot of money on lawyers, uh, both for the corporate side of what we were doing and building the company as well as for intellectual property. But it was very well worth it because the law firm that we worked with, their focus was startups. And they're only successful if you're successful. They don't want to see you stop paying their bills, so they're going to help you raise money. And they're, they're making introductions. They're making connections. And it's, it's part of establishing that credibility. Once you've got an idea that you believe in and you're communicating that passionately in the market, you're competing with other people that are, that are doing that very same thing. And ultimately, there's no magic formula for it. It's, this, it's a combination of you know, luck, providence, serendipity, whatever, but doing your homework, having, have, having the best plan you can, you can come to bat with, getting enough people to help you vet that plan as you go through and constantly respond to feedback during the fundraising process. But honestly, we pitched to everything that moved in 2001. None of the venture capitalists were putting any money into anything. Everything, everybody was scared. Nobody wanted to make any investments. For us, we had to get to the point where we had a functioning product that was deployed at a hospital, that someone else, another hospital, had already agreed and had paid us money to install for our second client. And that, along with the numerous personal references of all these happy doctors in Greensboro, was enough for this group of individuals to coalesce around the idea of, let's try to help these guys start something. So <clears throat> I think it'll be, it'll be different. We've talked, as I've talked to other people who have gone through this, everyone's got a different story in terms of how they raise the money. But the common threads are you talk to a lot a lot of people. And you're going, to get a lot, you're going to get a lot more no's and yes's, but ultimately that's a good thing because every no helps you refine your pitch, helps you refine the story, helps you learn what people are buying, what people are not buying, and, and target your next approach successfully. Thank you, BJ. That was great.
Thanks.